Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. Now given the COVID-19 scenario, we've moved to recording our interviews via Skype but hopefully you won't notice any difference in the quality. My guest today is Felicity Hayes McCoy. Born in Dublin, she studied literature at UCD before moving to London to train as an actress. She's had a very successful career in the UK in acting, but also in writing, where her work ranges from TV, radio drama and documentary to screenplays, memoir and children's books. Her latest title is called The Heart of Summer. And Felicity, you're one of a number of people who are launching books during the COVID-19 pandemic, meaning no launch parties, no no book tours. It must be very strange. <laughs> Hi, Brida. Yeah, it, it really is strange. Uh, it's 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 surreal. But then this whole thing is surreal. Uh, we launched, and I use the word loosely, the heart of summer, and it's the sixth in a series of. Uh, well, they all work as standalone books, but it's a series of novels set in a fictional. Uh, rural community in Ireland. And I live uh, part of the time here in London and part of the time at the end of the Dingle Peninsula. So normally I would be over there to launch such a book and it would be great. And, you know, we'd be having a big party and there'd be friends and everybody would be piling in and there'd be music until dawn. And instead I was sitting in a in a flat in the centre of London um, in Bermondsey, close to Tower Bridge. And there, <laughs> there was me and my husband and a bottle of din- Dingle Gin a bottle of dingle gin that came over from uh, from friends of ours over there and and the screen and social media. And I think social media is the big thing that's saving us all at the moment. And it is. And I'm sure that's one way you've been able to engage, obviously, with your readers. Oh, God, yes, it's fantastic. I mean, it's always been the case. And I'm I'm fortunate. I'm one of those those authors who um, I, I have quite a big um, online following. That sounds ridiculous and that's not as big as many, but I do. I mean, it's a great way of, of, of communicating with one's readers. My novels are published in the States as well as in Ireland and, and the UK. So the States and Canada, um, I'll have readers over there and they'll get in touch always via my Facebook page or on Twitter. And so it was already there. There was a network already there Um and the great thing it, when we brought out The Heart of Summer last week was that there's a fantastic warmth and support among writers happening during this weird time. And I was just blown away. I was sitting there with my last agenda in one hand and my cup of coffee in the other and wearing my pyjamas, looking at these lovely, lovely messages coming in from Irish authors and from Irish booksellers, booksellers in the UK and readers as well. It was fab. And it's so encouraging as well at a time when you need it. Oh, tell me about it. It's that wonderful sense. And I mean, really lovely people, people that I wouldn't necessarily have met personally. But I'm, you know, I'm aware of them out there because they're authors working in the same genre as I am. Like um, uh, Patricia Scanlon sent a lovely message and, uh, you know, Sinead Moriarty and and Claudio Carroll, all sorts of people who, who you'd be aware of or you might have sat on platforms with at events but wouldn't be your oldest and best friends, all piling in to be to be so 
kind and supportive and coming back at the end of the day to say, you know, did you enjoy it? Did you have a good time? It was great. And we'll come back to, to all of those, uh, the fiction titles now later on. But I suppose, first of all, just to, just to go back, you were always very creative and artistic and you, you studied literature first, English and Irish. Yeah, I, I studied English and Irish at UCD and at that stage of my life, you know, all I wanted to be was an actress. And it was weird because my mother, Lord of Mercy on her, um, years before that had said to me, you're going to be a writer. And I had said, I am not. I'm going to be a star on the stage. But uh, so back then, I was really interested in, in the theatre. And I never performed on a stage or played uh, as an actress uh, in the English language before I came to England. All the work I did was in Irish before I left Ireland. Um, so when I came to England and came to London, I came here to train as a, a, a you know, to get formal training at the drama studio here in London. And I kind of intended to go back, never really planned to stay here forever, as it were. I was in my 20s. And my first job was at was, uh, the Peacock, was with the Abbey Company. But um, that was my first theatre job. Before that, I had done a radio job for the BBC. And it, that was a, a stonking first job to have. It was a, it was a premiere of an Emlyn Williams play written for radio. And it was me and Michael Redgrave. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Your first job. So uh, audio was always a big love of mine. Radio was always a big thing for me. So after the, the, the job in Dublin with the Abbey Company, I came back to to London and kind of the rest was history. I, I my my career was really built here. But the acting obviously then came before the writing. That was was the acting more of the bigger love at the time. Yes, at that time it was. And the writing was pure happenstance arising out of needing to get work as an actress. Really? Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I had been working uh, for a season with the new Shakespeare company in Regent's Park, the open air theatre Regent's Park here in London. And the great thing about having a season is, you know, you've got money coming in at the end of the week, every week, and you, you can relax and you just, you're there with a company of people and you're doing great shows. I was doing Shaw and, and Shakespeare. And then what's coming towards you is the horror of the end of the season and unemployment. And I was panicking. Uh, I was used to the check at the end of the week. And so what I did, because I already had a foot through the door at the BBC, having done the the, the first job, was I, I wrote to a, a bunch of um, BBC radio producers. And I was trying to find a kind of a unique, unique selling point. So what I knew that I had to offer was I had studied folklore and I was Irish. So I wrote, because I thought it might be easier to get through that particular door, I wrote to that stage there was a school's rep, um, a, a, a repertory company of actors who were employed specifically to do things for the school's radio output at the BBC. And I wrote to one of the producers there and I said, look, I have all these these scripts, which was a black lie. I right. have no <laughs> scripts at all. Um, and they're folklore based and they might be useful. And I had a notion in my head if I could sell Irish material, I could get myself work as an Irish actress because I could snake in Irish language words and nobody would be able to pronounce them except myself. And it kind of worked. Right, really. <laughs> I started I started that way. And you were doing, you went on and did a lot of, of sort of scripts and all the rest for children's programmes in the UK. Yeah, well, again, you know, you do the, the usual thing. You're working away in one field and you're terrified that it's going to dry up or, you know, you feel you need to move on. And what had happened was because I was doing kids material for radio, I got picked up and I did kids shows as an actress. I did I did things like Rainbow. I don't know if anybody in Ireland ever saw it, you know, but we the, did. that was a kid's show, right? So Zippy and Bungle and me mm-hmm. worked and I did play school and things like that. And 
And while I was there, I, I, I don't know, when you're young, you're pushy. <laughs> when, you know, when I'd be there in the studio and there'd be a break and you'd be sitting chatting to the, the director or the producer, I would be making the point that I was writing scripts for radio. And I, with both ITV and, and BBC, I did manage to get myself into the position of writing for the programmes that I played in. And then a point came I can't even remember when it was, but there was a point when it diverged because I had an acting job. I think I was up at the Edinburgh Festival or something. And some, they also somebody also wanted to do a script of mine and I wasn't available to play in it. So the thing diverged and ultimately the, the writing took over, really. And you started then with the actual writing uh, of books were also kids books, obviously because you, you had a huge amount of experience at that point of, of, of children's work. Yeah, again, it's roll on. Uh, A couple of of, uh, programs that I had written for were doing spin-off books. Uh, There was was a a program called One Potato, Two Potato, which went out uh, on BBC Northern Ireland. And they had spin-off books. I think they used to go in, you know, it was obvious that there would be books and then those books would go into classroom libraries in schools. So work of mine had been published and uh, only because the work had already appeared, gone out on, on radio. But I got in touch with the O'Brien Press in uh, in Dublin and I do not remember how or why. I mean, I remember why I was looking for work, but I don't remember how. Anyway, at that stage, uh, the O'Brien Press were doing a, a series of kids' books which were based on myths and legends and folklore. Again, you see, it's always, as my mother used to say, it always helped to go have the university degree mm-hmm. because I had studied folklore and I, and I still, you know, it's a big love of mine still. So those were the O'Brien books and they're still out there selling away. It's wonderful, full, you know, the libraries in Ireland have really picked them up, local libraries, I mean, as well, I suppose, as, as school ones. And then it ran on from that, I guess. I was writing for television over here. I was writing, you know, I did things like Ballycus Angel. That's really? That's has always heard of, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and various, lots and lots of stuff that never made it to the screen, but you get paid for, which is the nature of writing for television. And did you enjoy uh, writing for television? Again, obviously, in comparison to writing books as such, is there much of a difference? I love writing for television um, because I suppose, um, you know, it, we... Be, having been an actress and having worked in, in in television, you you have a great sense of how the thing, how the shape of the thing works. And you know, my background was theatre. My background was play scripts. So I guess um, it was an obvious step across. And I, I mean, the first Ballycus Angel thing I did was, in fact, I didn't do a lot of Ballycus Angel, but um, the that was kind of sideways again out of radio. It was a producer I had worked for in radio who was now working on on the telly. And that whole theatrical side of the thing really is where I come from. And it's one of the reasons why when um, when I wrote my first book, what, what happened was I have a literary agent in, in, in London and uh, the agency has people who represent uh, broadcast writers, you know, television, screenplays, stuff like that, uh, as well as print writers. My broadcast agent introduced me to a print agent who, is now, who I know is my literary agent for, for, for my books. And in talking, we came up with the notion of, of doing a book about the fact that I live partly here in London and partly at the end of the Dingle Peninsula and and the nature of of how the written English language tradition and the oral Irish language tr- tradition kind of come together in my life and career. And that was the first book, The House on an Irish Hillside. 
And that was 2012. And was that, I mean, did you set out sort of to write a memoir, which is essentially what it is? <laughs> that was funny because I set out to get a book sold. So right, <laughs> truth okay. be told. And what what my agent had said to me was, look, the trouble is when you go into a big a big publishing house, it is always possible that things will get changed between step A and step Z. So on the one hand, you have to go in with something very clear. You know, we're selling this and this is its unique selling point. But you also are sort of signaling, but of course I can change it. I can be anything you like. It can become something quite different. And so there's always this conversation where people are saying, we don't want to undermine your integrity. And you're saying, look, at, I won't let you undermine my integrity. I know that what I write will be what I want to write. But if it needs to be um, directed differently towards a different marketplace or a different genre for your purposes, we can talk about that. I'm a pro. So actually, it went in as a mind, body and spirit book. Oh, right. And I never wanted it to be a mind, body and spirit book. Not that I don't appreciate the genre because I do, but because I, I thought it had something other and extra to say. And in the process of... Um, the editorial process and the process of talking to sales and marketing and so forth, it sort of morphed into a memoir. But you were happy for that to happen? Very, very. Mm. It was the shape. Genre is very difficult. You know, I mean, it's completely understandable because you're a bookseller, you need to know what shelf to put things on. And very much the case if you're trying to sell online, you need to have, you know, to be to embed particular keywords so people can pick up what they're looking for. So I do understand the concept of genre and it's a very old one. But it is confusing sometimes for authors because particularly if you write, as I do, what is known as woman's commercial fiction, um, you know, I just think I write novels. And I think all of us in the in the genre think we write novels. Marion Keyes is wonderful on the subject, but it's called woman's commercial fiction and it's packaged as woman's commercial fiction. And and it it throws up a lot of interesting um causes for discussion. And before you got into your, your woman's fiction, as you say, you went on then with another another number of nonfiction titles as well. So did you did you just get the buzz around writing nonfiction at the time or just were they the ideas were, were so clear in your head you wanted to pursue them? Well, after the House on an Irish Hillside was written, and it, it was it was very successful. It's still out there, still being reprinted constantly, which is a delight to me. Um, but one of the things that the really pleased me with the feedback from readers was an awful lot of people um, thought it was illustrated. It wasn't illustrated. It was a book without illustrations. But I had set up before it was ever published on the advice of my agent, I had set up a Facebook page for it. And if you live at the end of the Dingle Peninsula, it's almost impossible not to take good photographs Mm -hmm. because, you know, it is so unbelievably beautiful. You just have to point your camera and click and the chances are if you can crop it into any sort of sensible shape, if you have any kind of an artistic eye, you'll come up with something that looks looks pretty damn good. So the House on an Irish Hillside's Facebook page, still up there, 18k followers, um, was a series of beautiful photographs and quotes from the book. And the result of that was that some readers got confused and they, they they thought they had read a book that had pictures. In fact, they had read a book and they had looked at pictures. There was a call for an illustrated follow-up. Right. And I could see how it was justifiable. And I had a book that I wanted to write, which was a memoir of a different kind. It's called A Woven Silence, Memory, History and Remembrance. And I wanted to write it because we were coming up to the 1916 rising uh, commemorations in Ireland. And it was a book 
uh, it was a very strongly feminist book. It was a book about history. It was uh, a book about mixed messages and the reason why I left Ireland and came to, to, to live in England. Growing up in that weird uh, sort of second wave of fem- feminism Ireland. And it was about history and it was about the fact that my granny's cousin, Marion Stokes, was one of the three women who raised the tricolour over the Athenaeum in Enniscorthy in 1916. So Marion was a woman who was a revolutionary. She was she was a, a teenager when she went out in 1916. But I knew her. She died at the age of 87 and oh, I knew wow. her. And she never talked about it. I never knew that she had been a revolutionary. I never knew that she was part of setting up the Ireland that then didn't become the Ireland that they had really wanted to set up the women who fought. Mm. So that was the reason for doing the one to do that book. And I took it to the Collins Press, which is now no longer there, but the Collins Press in Cork. And when I was talking to Con Collins about doing A Woven Silence, I said, look, will you open Facebook and look at the House on an Irish Hillside's page? And he did. And I said, I want to do an illustrated follow-up to the House on an Irish Hillside because you can see that it's, it's required. And when I came away from that meeting, my agent rang me the next day and said, I don't know what you said, but you seem to have got a two-book deal. Great. <laughs> so, so Enough is Plenty, The Year on the Dingle Peninsula, which is the follow-up to the House on an Irish Hillside, and A Woven Silence, Memory, History and Remembrance, which is a very different kind of memoir, were both commissioned by the Collins Press. You switched then to fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and again, was that a... a, 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 a decision you made or was it just something that happened? That was my agent. We, we always meet in the Dickens Museum Cafe over here in London because it's down the road from her offices and it's a, it's a lovely cafe in the house that Dickens used to live in, uh, which is now a museum. And we were sitting there uh, drinking coffee and eating lemon drizzle take, cake, which <laughs> is our want. And uh, we were talking about the next book. And I remember she, she said, you can't just keep mining your own life. It's, it's, mm. it's not going to keep working. Have you said all you really want to say about your own life and things? And I said, well, certainly for the present, I think I have. But we'll be moving from, from one field to another. And, and, you know, I'm not sure how we do that. And she said, well, in a sense, you'll be moving backwards uh, as well as moving forwards because your your, your background is drama, which is essentially fiction. So what do you reckon? And I said, okay, let me think about it. And I, we had talked about protagonists and I really wanted a middle-aged female protagonist. Um, we had come up with the idea that she would be a librarian in a, in a, you know, a local librarian in a, in a small Irish town. And I, I kind of was grasped by the notion of writing, uh, an ordinary piece of fiction about contemporary rural Ireland, which I do know about because I live there half the time. So, you know, there'd be no shamrocks and there'd be no leprechauns and and it wouldn't be about, you know, the horrors of having to go to England for an abortion uh, or any of those things that have been written by others far better than I could write them. It would just be about cross-generational... society in modern rural Ireland. And that worked. We, we pitched it to Ashette Ireland. Uh, they were great. They picked up two books to begin with. And, and now we're on book uh, six uh, and seven and eight. We just, it was just announced in the, in the trade press, press, seven and eight book deal has been done. And when you pitched it initially, had you written anything at that point? Well, um, what what I did was I talked it through with my agent. I came away. I I drafted a, a pitch, 
Um, she and I went back and forth on it. She took it to Ashette Island. Now, I would already have had a relationship with Ashette because Hodder and Stoughton and Ashette Island together had, had published um, Hodder being part of the Ashette under the Ashat umbrella, had published the house on an Irish hillside. So um, Ashat was looking after the house on an Irish hillside in the Irish market. So they knew me and they knew my work. Uh, Rita Perdue there, who's a wonderful woman in charge uh, in, in, in Dublin, uh, came back to my age and said, yeah, I can see what she's doing. I can see what we're talking about here. But obviously I would need, I would need to um, have a sample. So knowing that she was kind of on board and knew where I was going. I sat down and spent some time writing, I think it was a couple of chapters. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of that, we got the commission. And at that point, had you decided it was a series or were you planning a standalone? Well, uh, I always <laughs> I always start with the assumption that there has to be somewhere to go. So yes, I had in the back of my mind the notion of a series that had to work as a standalone because all novels written as part of a series have to work as standalones as well. Otherwise, you've you've backed yourself into a silly corner because people go, well, if I have to go back to book one, I won't pick up book five and buy it now. So that never happens. But also, I wanted the 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 the. My setting was very much like the precinct model in television drama. If you're writing a, uh, an ongoing series in television, your setting, if it's a precinct setting, is it's the obvious one. It's you've you've chosen to set it in a hospital or a police uh, station or you know anywhere where uh, that is the centre of a community where lots of different characters come and go, and you can follow different storylines at different times. And because I was setting mine in a community, uh, the two things sort of meshed. So I knew that Hannah Casey, my protagonist, who is the local librarian, was always going to be the fulcrum. She was always going to be the center of the books. But I also knew that people around her, I could plant people, as it were, upstage to, mm-hmm. to, to turn it from one metaphor into another, to, to, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a theater sense. I could put them in the background, certain characters, and t- tell myself I'd be quite interested in exploring those later on, maybe in another book. And that's what's happened. Characters that were in the background in the library at the edge of the world, the first book, have sort of come forward and almost become the the, 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 the central or foremost characters in subsequent books. But Hannah is always there holding it together. And in terms of a series, then, as you said, each book, you want to ensure that it can be read on its own. But also you need to give a little bit of backstory in each book so that they understand the setting and where she's come from. And uh, sometimes I find with some books it's done quite well, with others it can be a little bit clunky or they're they're trying to tell me too much. So how do you manage that? How do you balance that out to give the reader enough so that they understand where the story is going and what the character is like? It is a real... Um, challenge always with when you're writing series. I think I always think people who who write detective stories must have it a lot because you know your your P.D. James is Adam Dalgleish is a character who uh, you know he's always there and he's always being the detective. But you do follow his his backstory and his love story through through the series, and you have to get told over and over again who he is and where he came from and you know, where he is now in, in in his career arc. James does it absolutely brilliantly because she does it very sparsely. I suppose what I'm aware of it all the time. It's funny. I actually had a conversation about this two days ago with Marcella Reardon, who is the voice artist who does the audiobooks um, of the Finn Farron series. Um, the, the the series is called the Finn Farron series because the the makey yuppie county where it's set in Ireland is called County Finn Farron. 
it's somewhere between Claire Cork and Kerry. Right. Anyway, somewhere. I was talking to myself. <laughs> and she was about to do the Transatlantic Book Club, which is um, book five in the series. She's just this coming week. She's going to be recording it. It's coming out in the States um, in uh, November. And she said to me, I'm prepping it now and I'm reading it again. And I'm aware that there's a difficulty in the audio book reader repeating information that has been re- been given in the earlier books. One, you know, does one say it in the voice of one that knows it's been heard already and one's catching people up? Or does one say it in just flat? And I was grateful to say that she... I was grateful to hear that she um, was comfortable with being able to just read it straight. She said, you know, it, it seems to sit in there and it seems to fit. What I do partly is I, if I'm giving information I've given before, sometimes I give it to the different characters. It's conveyed by different characters mm-hmm. or I, certainly I'll try and convey it in a different setting. But there is also a sort of comfortable familiarity element in what I'm writing and and in the messages I'm I'm messages hate the word messages but you know in in my world of view I think there is comfort in the the known and the and the repa- repeated um so there are particular descriptions of places where I will just ring the changes on something that's there already I remember years and years ago there was a, an author called Elizabeth Googe my mom used to read her and I remember hearing her once being being interviewed and she wrote family sagas around a particular house. And she said, for the readers to whom it's new, that's no problem. For readers who know these books already, I want them to feel they're going into a house that they've been in, that they love. And there is the same gorgeous, comfortable sofa that they know from before and they can sink into it and it'll feel just as it did the first time. And that sense of familiarity really, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's what brings people back. So you're, you're looking at two things simultaneously. You're looking at, well, three, I suppose, the person who will just read the book, the person who is new to the series but might have come to it because it's a series, and the avid fan who will come back and back and back just because they love Finn Farron. And this is, so The Heart of Summer is book six, is that right? Yes. And you've done the deal for seven and eight. Yep. So how many more instalments do you think (laughs) we're going to have? Well, I don't know. It depends on on whether my publishers want to to continue to commission. It depends on whether readers want to continue to read. Uh, I'm working also on another standalone novel that has got nothing to do with with Finn Farron at the moment um, for my agent, um, which isn't commissioned. Uh, I think sometimes it's quite good to step away and and make sure you haven't lost, uh, make sure that you haven't got so drawn into a particular voice or a particular style that that, that's what you write. Somewhere deep inside you, you can think, oh my God, can I still do the other stuff? And what's the standalone about? Uh, It's called The Keepsake Quilters. And um, it's it's about three inarticulate women from three different generations of the one family. And a uh, an event that occurs which makes it necessary for them to communicate but they are the kind of women who don't do uh, hugging kissing sitting down and chatting mm. so it's it's sort of exploring that idea of communication without um without words and the the 
one of the things that interests me about it is that it's a, it's a it's a grandmother a, a mother and a daughter and the daughter is the executive producer of a morning show on television which is entirely about women sitting down and, and giving each other <laughs> advice and talking to each other and and solving each other's problems through speech and do you find a number of authors have said that trying to write at the moment with the pandemic on, they're finding it very, very difficult. How are you getting on? I think I'm finding it very, very difficult. Um, but I've always been driven by deadlines and uh, there's nothing new there. Therefore, you know, I'm, I've just started yesterday. I started plotting Finn Farron 7, which is called The Year of Lost and Found. And uh, it, what I find is it's much harder to start, you know, to, to, to beat yourself to the desk or to uh, what I used to always to do when I could was to start a new book. I always took a new A4 notebook and I went out to some lovely coffee shop uh, with a pencil and a rubber and a sharpener. And I would sit down and start writing that way until I got to the point when I was frustrated about not being able to cut and paste and mm-hmm. use my laptop. And at that point, because I wanted to get to my screen, mm-hmm. I would go home and start working. And of course, that's not possible now. I, I kind of went into another room with my with <laughs> as my as far pencil. as you can go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't quite the same. But yeah, you bash on. I have deadlines, and mm. and uh, once you're actually doing it, I find uh, you get on. But I do find, and I think a lot of us do at the moment, real bone weary, brain dead exhaustion hitting sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's about. I think it must be just stress. Uh, and it sure as hell doesn't doesn't help if you're trying to write a book. It doesn't. And are you writing every day at the moment? Uh, I have. I will be now that I've, I've started on the on the new book. Uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks, I was largely promoting um, the heart of summer. You know, the, the, the great thing is the publicist will get you um, you know, I did a, did a piece for various magazines. I've I, RT Culture put up a bit on on online an extract from the book, and I had to choose that. And so you're writing that kind of thing. You're writing te- uh, newspaper stuff and, and and magazine stuff, and that and also stuff for for um, websites. That kind of promotion driven stuff mm. is is specific and it works in a particular way and you're used to doing it. So I have been doing that solidly for the last couple of weeks in the run-up. But that's now out there and having to float itself and wonderful, wonderful Irish independent booksellers online are being, they're playing a blinder for authors this Mm -hmm. summer. They're just being fantastic. So you can tweet a few things at the beginning of the day about your book and you can know they'll be picked up and, and, and they'll be driven on by others while you sit down to write the next one. And normally how long does it take you to write one? Well, if I if I'm writing every day and I'm working flat out, um, which is of course never the case because things interrupt and you're you know you're dealing with copy edits on the other editions of the books in other territories and all that stuff, and sometimes that will take over a whole day, that extraneous stuff. But I guess you could say six to eight months, mm-hmm. including plotting. Yeah, but you've half plotted because you've pitched. You see, you know, you know, you know what the themes of the book are a year before you come to sit down and write it, because if it's been commissioned, um, it's been commissioned from a pitch. So uh, what I find is uh, sort of I'll discover when I sit down to do it that my unconscious has been working away quietly in the Mm -hmm. background. And when I bring that up to the conscious level, 
all sorts of things have fallen into place thematically. And it's, a, it, it's so you're starting a little bit further down the road already. Well, we're very much looking forward to reading, obviously, The Heart of Summer and to figure out what's going to come in book seven and book eight of the series. So, Felicity Hayes-McCoy, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find all of Felicity's books online at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 